Hello and welcome to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. Sunny summer days are behind us, and for some in the U.S., we start a season where conditions are constantly damp and muddy, often followed by cases of lameness in the flock. Foot issues, especially those from foot rot, can not only be a drag on your sheep's health and performance, but constant trimming is rarely a shepherd's most enjoyable management activity. But with that said, recommendations on treatment are evolving, thanks in large part to the extensive efforts of our guest today. Dr. Laura Green is a professor emeritus at the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom and has had a decorated research career as a veterinary epidemiologist specializing in infectious and non-infectious diseases of livestock. Her work on foot health in sheep has changed the landscape for British farmers, and we are very appreciative to have her on the podcast today. Thanks for being here, Dr. Green. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Dr. Green, my introduction of you was very brief. Uh, Would you mind providing our audience a, a bit more background about yourself and how you became interested in studying lameness in livestock? Yes, thank you. I, um, I'm a vet by training. So um, after I graduated, I did spend about a year in mixed practice um, and had always wanted to specialise in sheep. I had the opportunity to apply for a PhD scholarship, which I, I won. Um, and I think by the time I finished the scholarship, which was focusing on epidemiology of diseases, I was very keen to stay in research and passionate about preventing disease rather than curing disease. Um, And I had always wanted to work with sheep, as I say, and and lameness is such an endemic issue and such a challenge. Um, And I just felt that it didn't appear as though we'd made any progress for for many years. And I was very keen that we we start to take a new, fresh approach at looking at how we could manage lameness in sheep. Yeah, that's really neat because you're right. Lameness is uh, a worldwide problem uh, for for sheep farmers and and sheep flocks. And so that's really, really neat that you became interested in that. So to get things started, would you mind talking about what are the most prevalent causes of of lameness in sheep and and how does that affect their overall productivity? So I think... If we start by saying most of the causes of lameness are in the feet, there are other causes that we see from time to time, but if we think mainly about foot lameness. And then there are two key differences, I would say. We've got infectious causes of lameness and non-infectious causes of lameness. Um, The the, the infectious causes dominate because, of course, they spread from sheep to sheep, whereas the non-infectious ones we will see sporadically in individual sheep. Uh, In the UK, foot rot is the most common cause of lameness. Um, and, and when we're talking about foot rot, we group together the more severe presentation and scald, which we'll talk a bit more later, won't we, about those two presentations. So probably together, they're about 70% of causes of lameness in, in the UK. We have another infectious disease called contagious ovine digital dermatitis, or COD. Um, that's increasingly important. It's another infectious disease, probably bacterial, and is probably responsible for actually not much less than the other 30% of of lameness. But then you get these non-infectious causes, and and we'll all have seen them, these granulomas, which are strawberry, pink, fleshy-like protuberances from the foot, which they're very painful if you touch them and they bleed very quickly. Um, We also have something called white line disease, where the the wall horn separates from the sole horn, 
and you get sort of like a pocket of of um, air which can get compacted with soil. Sheep can become lame if thorns or stones get into them and cause an infection, um, and that might burst out as an abscess. So we also see abscesses. Um, and we have this condition, Shelley hoof, which doesn't in itself cause lameness, but we we can see large numbers of individuals in a flock with friable wool horn coming away from the sole horn, uh, which we don't really know why it happens, to be honest, but that's the other non-infectious condition we have. Okay. Now, scald and foot rot, as you mentioned, are, are a, a big problem, and that's obviously the, the case in the United States as well. But before we get into that uh, a bit more, can you can you explain just a little bit how maybe lameness from those diseases or those conditions presents differently than an animal that might be lame from an injury? Um, so I think if the injury is in the foot, it, it could well look the same. So until you turn the sheep over and look at the foot, you, you won't know what the cause of lameness is. Um, sometimes you can see sheep which are, are not weight-bearing at all, for example, so they might have a, um, a, a swollen joint or even a fracture higher up the leg, and they just won't weight-bear at all. Um, but it's one of those um, you need to look at the sheep to see, and, and they've got four feet, so you've got enough comparisons in limbs and feet to be able to work out where the lameness is. Yeah, absolutely. So in the case of foot rot, what pathogen is responsible, and what is the progression of that disease in sheep? So the pathogen that causes foot rot is called Dicylobacter nodosus. Uh, it is a specific pathogen. That's the only thing it does that, as far as we know, is cause foot rot in sheep. And it's very specialized to the feet of sheep. We don't find it anywhere else. Uh, and it can only live in a diseased foot. So it obviously spreads through the soil or pasture or bedding, but it's only alive and able to reproduce on, on the foot of a, a diseased sheep. Um, what we see in terms of disease is sometimes you might actually see nothing to start with, but a, a sheep is lame. Um, within a few days, we will see the scald presentation. So that's typically uh, a loss of the hair between the, um, the horn. So the, the skin between the horn, we call the interdigital skin, loss of hair there. Maybe swelling and redness, but quite often it looks more grey and there'll be like a, a scummy layer of um, ooze over the top. Um, and then the next progression is that the bacteria starts to invade underneath the horn. So it's going from the skin underneath the hard horn capsule. And that's when we start to see the horn capsule separate from the foot. Okay. And that whole process can take as little as eight days. Okay. So pretty quick. Dicylobacter nodosis, is that the pathogen that has always been believed to be the cause of a foot rod or was there some previous thinking that was a little bit different? Yes. It, it, I think a long time ago and more than a century ago, um, studies were, um, and we weren't able to grow this organism. And so they were, people were filtering out um, sort of ooze from sheep and then swabbing it back onto sheep to see what would happen. And very early on, it was known that dicylobacter nodosus was the cause of foot rot. But there's been some, I mean, controversies. I mean, it was the, it was the edge of knowledge, if you like. Um, yeah. And what we do know is that the dicylobacter nodosus won't cause disease unless the skin is damaged in some way. Um, and so one thought for a while was that there was another organism called Fusobacterium that um, damaged the skin initially. And then the dicylobacter nodosus came in as a secondary. Um, and 
it was thought that that this um, Fusobacterium necrophorum was in pasture. Um, it was ubiquitous in soil. And so we were always going to get disease from the Fusobacterium. And if the Dicetobacters were present, you would then get foot rot. What, what we now know is it's the other way around. And in fact, the Fusobacterium doesn't start to multiply on the sheep foot until you've got the Dicetobacter and foot rot. But probably that Fusobacterium is responsible for some of that nasty smell that we get with foot rot. It still leaves us with the quandary that the, the foot has to be damaged in some way for the Dicetobacter to gain entry. But I mean, I mean, you started the podcast talking about the fact we're now in these cool, wet conditions. Right. And I think just having wet skin for 24 hours a day for a few days is enough for the skin in integrity to get weaker and the Dicetobacter to invade. Okay. Now, you also mentioned Dicetobacter is present in the soil for a period of time. How long is it viable in the soil? So really very little time at all. Uh, if the soil is dry, it, the Dicetobacter will die within minutes. Um, and so it's soil moisture, which will keep the organism alive for a little bit longer. But we're probably talking one to two days. Um, but, but what you need to think of is that these diseased feet I've talked about before um, are they've got millions and millions of Dicetobacter organisms on them. So every time a sheep with a diseased foot walks, she's planting several million bacteria in the soil. So although each one of those might only survive for 48 hours, you only need another sheep to come along and step in that infectious footprint for them to get infected, them to get diseased, and they will then spread the, the bacteria. So you, you can get contamination 24-7, even though the bacteria are dying off quite quickly. Okay. Now, are there different strains of this bacteria that affect sheep potentially differently? There are different strains, and we use different strains when we're investigating um, maybe what's happening on a farm. And sometimes we, we create specific vaccines against certain strains. But the strains themselves don't determine how severe the disease is. What determines the severity of the disease is the number of fimbri that we see on the bacteria in, in dicetobactinidosis. So if you think of dicetobactinidosis as a, a tube, um, the fimbri are little hairs that come off the end of the tube, and they are what a, enables the bacteria to move. So the bacteria moves by pushing out, a bit like an octopus uh, legs, I guess, pushing out these fimbri and pulling the bacteria along, and that's how it can invade into the skin. And so the more of those there is on any one organism, the, the, the more it's able to invade. But all the different strains can have more or fewer of these fimbri. It's very clever. Yeah. Now, is foot rot pretty much predominantly diagnosed by visual signs that you described? Or is there a, is there a test for subclinical foot rot potentially? Or is, is there some way to determine that Dicelobacter is present without actually seeing the visual signs in an animal? So it's it, you, they're almost synonymous that if you want to, to know if you've got foot rot present, you need to have some clinical signs because that's where you would take a swab. And then you, you can get a diagnose, diagnosis through um, a PCR. So just a, a direct um recognition that the bacteria are on the foot what we tend to say is that if you if you know that you've got foot rot in a country and in a flock through the smell and the clinical signs you, you don't need to go to further diagnosis um, and certainly 
because as I've mentioned before, we don't have subclinical disease. We don't need to do a diagnostic test to see if there's subclinical disease there. Okay. Now, can you explain a bit more about the research that you recently conducted studying the relationship between the microbes present on the feet before and during foot rot? Yeah, so um, that particular piece of research, what we did was we sampled some sheep regularly. So we we, um, turned them over, examined them to see what foot lesions they had and took a swab from each foot once a week for 20 weeks. And we had 40 sheep that we did that to. So if you do 40 sheep times 40 feet times 20 weeks, you have an awful lot of swabs. Um, We then removed um, the bacteria from the swabs and counted the numbers of dicylobacters and the numbers of fusobacterium that we found on, on each foot. And we mapped that against um, healthy feet. And then as the feet progressed from healthy to scald to foot rot. Uh, and this is where we found that the dicylobacters increase in number first. And they increase the week before we see any disease at all. Um, once we see disease, they, they level off. They're still high, but they level off. And then we see the fusobacterium numbers increase as we have the underrunning foot rot. And that's what told us the, the pattern of disease formation from these two organisms. That's really neat. Now, on the, on the topic of, of sheep that are maybe potentially predisposed to, to foot rot, I would assume that overall animal health and, and maybe nutrition can affect the susceptibility of a sheep to foot rot. I think, I mean, that has to be true, doesn't it, in that we're all more susceptible to infectious diseases if we have um, a poor diet or or we're inadequate in certain ways. But by and large, this is an infectious disease. And so, um, so long as the bases of health and nutrition are are being fulfilled, it's certainly not a disease that's caused by a deficiency. So I, I would be very cautious of, I don't know if you have this in the States, but we would have people arriving at the farm gate with a big tub of minerals and saying, feed this to your sheep and you won't get foot rot. That just won't happen. You know, it, the, the way we control foot rot is by thinking about it as an infectious disease and doing the, the treatments and the biosecurity measures. Okay. I would turn it around the other way, though, and say, um, if you've got thin sheep, have they got foot rot? Because they do lose condition if they have foot rot for any length of time. Um, and a a flock where foot rot's controlled well, I think you'll see very few thin sheep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, for a long time, the recommendation was to trim the feet of the sheep that have foot rot, uh, even to the point of potentially exposing that bacteria to oxygen to, to kill it. However, your work has shown that isn't the most effective treatment. Is that right? That's right. In fact, it, it delays healing. If, if you trim the feet of sheep. So I have some sympathy in that, you know, if you think this disease has been around for several hundred years and we haven't had antibiotics for, for very long, so maybe at some point in the past this was the best that we can do. But what we know is if we trim feet and we trim them that severely, they don't grow back in the same way. So we create sheep with malformed feet that are in fact more likely to get foot rot again. And it also doesn't kill the bacteria, and that's because some of the bacteria are so deep in the foot that you can't get to them through trimming the foot. So our work has shown that if we give an antibiotic injection um, and it needs to be an injection of a, a long-acting antibiotic, so it'll last 48 hours, say. So we typically in the UK would recommend oxytetracycline. 
Um, it has to be at the right dose for the weight of the sheep. If, if you underdose, you might be saving money, but you're not going to cure the sheep. So it's a false saving. Um, we also recommend topical treatment of the all four feet of the sheep. And that kills off the surface bacteria, which makes the sheep less infectious to other sheep in the flock. Um, and no trimming at all. Even, even if the feet look horrible, just, just leave them alone. Um, if you're in a situation where you can easily catch the sheep again after five days, just look at the sheep again and you'll see how much the horn that looked like it was dead and displaced and coming away has, has moved back down onto the foot and, and is protecting the foot from um, physical damage. So I, I guess a, a good way to think about this from the disease point of view is um, if, if I asked um, our listeners to take their shoes off, and spend a day without their shoes on, with all the things that you do, whether it's driving the car, walking, whatever, you would have very sore feet very quickly. So why would we trim the foot of a sheep down to the, the living tissue and then expect them to walk away? You know, that it's going to hurt, and it'll hurt for some time because it takes considerable time for that horn to regrow. Absolutely. Now, are there scenarios where foot trimming is beneficial to sheep? I think there are very few indeed. Um, one might be if you've got a sheep which has malformed feet. So sometimes you have feet where the, the horn grows in a sort of a corkscrew. Um, you may have to trim the feet then because uh, otherwise the sheep is physically having problems walking. But I would also say that's a sheep that needs to be culled and you don't want to breed from a sheep like that in case you're passing on that hereditary malformation. Um, another occasion may be when you've got... Uh, rams, for example, that are being fed quite a, a an, an energy intense diet, yep. but they're not getting exercise. Um, and typically they'll be on concrete as well, or maybe in a little orchard. Um, and their feet might grow very long. So again, physically, it might be preventing them from walking. So you would want to take back just the dead horn. Um, and then the, the disease I mentioned earlier on, shelly hoof, where we see some flakiness of the horn of the wall um, we don't know, but at the moment, the current recommendation is to take the horn away, uh, again, not, not into the sensitive tissue. But what that will do is it will stop the possibility of soil packing into any pockets that, that are in, in the horn itself. What I would absolutely say, though, is it's never beneficial to trim to the point of sensitivity. Yeah. Um, and, and to think about ourselves again, that would be like, cutting our fingernails too short and so they bled why would you do it it really isn't a very nice thing to do um and some of the granulomas that we see these pink fleshy protuberances are when we've seen farmers trim the feet too short yeah. um the other time you might want to which is not beneficial for the sheep particularly but if you're showing sheep yeah. um you know it's nice there's a lot of work goes into making the wool look nice um and beautiful and and the feet have a manicure as well don't they or a pedicure yeah. Um, but again, that would be without going into sensitive tissue. So just, just you know, very nicely trimming the feet to a tidy shape. Okay. So I think you alluded to it already, but what, what is the best practice for farmers to follow for treatment of foot rot? So we covered most of it. I mean, I've mentioned both the injectable antibiotic and the foot spray. Yeah. Um, I, the other critical point is to treat sheep as soon as they become lame. So our work has shown, um, and this is work that's come from working with farmers 
commercial farmers in the UK, if if we can treat lame sheep within three days of them becoming lame with foot rot, then um, it's best for the sheep. They have no production losses, so they don't lose weight. They don't have any impact on um, lamb birth numbers, lamb survival, lamb growth rate. Um, but the other thing it does is it stops onward transmission of disease. So it also protects the flock. Not completely. It would be lovely if we could say yeah. you'll get rid of foot rot. You won't get rid of it, but but you will reduce the number of sheep that become lame as well as the length of time that they're lame for. So that prompt treatment bit is very important as well as how you treat. Sure. Now, would it be important to keep those lame sheep that you've just recently treated in a dry environment or is that something that could be more just create more challenge ideally i mean i would love to say when you treat a lame sheep separate it from the flock because of course you're also preventing onward transmission if you do that and keep it somewhere nice and dry um what i wouldn't want to do is discourage people from treating lame sheep though so i would say it's more important that they're treated then you worry about have you got somewhere dry to put them don't put off treatment because of that and i think that's because the, the biggest effect for the sheep itself is the injectable antibiotic and it really doesn't matter whether the feet are wet or dry for the injectable antibiotic. Okay. Now, are there pros and cons of using a foot bath to control foot rot? Well, I think the biggest con is it doesn't work. Okay. So, <laughs> the big one. <laughs> it absolutely doesn't work. So if you've got if you've got sheep with underrunning foot rot, um, a foot bath will not cure them. They might get better in about six to twelve weeks, but they probably would have done that anyway. Okay. So it, it doesn't work as a treatment. Uh, in the UK, the, the farmers who are no longer using foot baths at all have the lowest level of lameness and they're keeping on top of lameness through this individual treatment. We have a lot of farmers that like foot bathing um, and it's a, it's a bit of a hobby. Um, it's something they've enjoyed doing for many, many years, gathering the flock, putting them through a foot bath, but it, it probably isn't doing any good at all. The only time... I think it's worth doing, and um, even this is a bit of a cop-out, is if, if we have one of these outbreaks of scald in a, a flock with lambs, we typically see that in the spring months, um, and you can you can get a sudden epidemic of lameness, maybe with 5 to 10% of sheep becoming lame, and the, the foot bath will dampen that down. So that's, an, that's a treatment for the early stage of foot rot, so the scald, really. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't use foot baths as a routine for no reason at all. And I wouldn't use them to treat foot rot. Okay. Now, are there other lesions or foot issues or, or problems with, with microbes, good microbes potentially on the foot that can arise from excessive foot bathing? Well, they may well be. I think that's a really interesting question. So we've definitely recently done a study looking at um, the, the granulomas I mentioned and white line disease and shelly hoof. And we have found that in flocks that are using formalin in the foot bath, these are at a higher level. Uh, and that might be because formalin damages cells and cell growth. And so rather than it benefiting foot rot, what it's doing is killing off the skin in the sheep and uh, affecting the healing process. And so again, the foot is healing, but it's the wrong things are growing. And that's why you get these granulomas growing. So, so the, probably is some detriment from foot bathing there 
We are also looking now at the microbiome of the skin of the foot. Um, lots of people are now doing these sorts of studies on microbiomes, aren't there? And as you can imagine, that the skin of the foot, there's lots of different bacteria there. It's never going to be a sterile site. Uh, and we do see that before sheep get foot rot, the microbiome changes. Um, and so, of course, if you're foot bathing and you're perpetually perturbing that microbiome, you're changing it, it may be that you're not doing any good at all to the, to the natural state. Okay. Now, you also brought up uh, Shelly hoof and, and white lie disease. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the best management practices for controlling or treatment of, of those conditions too? I can have a go. I have to say there is, there's far less evidence around these. Um, I think the, I guess the, the quick thing is that if as a result of those, a sheep gets an abscess in the foot, then that still needs an antibiotic treatment. Yeah. Um, my feeling with Shelly hoof is most of the sheep aren't laying with it. And so the best thing is just to leave them alone. Yeah. I think that's what we've we've established this don't tamper with feet unless you need to. Right. Okay. Um, at the moment with white lion disease, the suggestion is that um, the, the, sorry, the Shelly hoof is, is this, when you get this pocket of horn uh, popping out that you trim that away to stop um, impactions but there, you know, there's no trial that's been done to check whether if you just leave sheep alone or do that trimming, you get a, a difference in effect. Uh, somebody, if someone's got a flock with a lot of problems with it, they could try that at home for themselves and see whether the trimming helps or not. Because if it doesn't help, then you're doing a lot of work for no reason. And then white line disease, really the only time you'll see it is once it's become infected and there's an abscess. So, yes, yeah, just, just a one-off antibiotic injection will help there. Okay. Now I'm not as familiar with, with COD or CODD that you mentioned earlier, uh, but it sounds like a, a, a pretty nasty condition. Uh, is, is there a best management practice for, for dealing with that? Or, or what is kind of your work uh, in that area for, for dealing with that condition? Yeah. So it is a very nasty condition. Um, what we see is that in the UK, we still have flocks that don't have CODD and flocks that do. Um, when it enters a flock for the first time, you can have 50-60% of sheep lame. And um, the lameness is a really horrible presentation. So it's the feet are very bloody. The whole horn capsule can, can come away. Um, so these sheep are, you know, five out of five lame. They're not putting the foot down at all. Um, it does settle down. And I think the immunity to CODD is probably slightly better than the natural immunity we see in sheep with foot rot. But farmers who have CODD, um, the, the best treatment we now find is to, to give the sheep two antibiotic injections five days apart. Um, and again, uh, a broad spectrum, but you know, fairly low down on the critical antibiotic list. So something that, that's not used in humans and is, is not likely to create um, much resistance. Um, and farmers get better at diagnosing CODD and the earlier you give the treatment, the, the less severe the disease becomes. Sure. Yeah. But the basic, you know, the, the other big message, and this this is actually just as true for foot rot, even if um, a, there's foot rot on a farm, is, is really good biosecurity. So buying from flocks where they're managing lameness well, quarantine for at least 21 days when new animals are bought in or come back from being grazed elsewhere, um, and, and spotting and treating any lame sheep during that 21-day period. So, uh, you know, that, that will really help to control um, foot rot and COGD. Okay. 
Now, in your experience for any of these foot issues, or maybe uh, we should keep it within the context of, of foot rot, are there breeds of sheep that tend to be more or less prone to these conditions? So often people will say there are. Um, I, I think that it may be the case that some of the ancient breeds, you know, these very small hairy sheep yeah. are less susceptible. Um, but it's so confounded by the fact that they're often kept very sparsely populated, so very low stocking densities, which will reduce transmission. I don't think we can be entirely sure that it's not how they're kept. But what we do know is within breeds, some sheep are more susceptible to foot rot than others. Um, and I think that's often why someone will have two breeds in, in on their farm and they'll say, oh, you know, my uh, breed X is much more susceptible right. to foot rot than breed Y. It just happens to be the, the two different contrasts and they can see it clearly by breed. But in fact, within both of those breeds, there'll be some sheep that get foot rot five, six, seven times and some that don't get it at all. And, and the good news is if you record what's going on and you record which sheep are getting lame, over time you will see the sheep that never get lame. And what you want to do is keep the offspring of those sheep and you will gradually introduce a more resilient group of sheep into the flock. Um, so, so cull the sheep that get repeatedly lame, but actually you really want to keep replacements from those that are never lame. Uh, and and you're, one, one is removing susceptibility, but the other is increasing resistance. Right. Now, is there, in your opinion, is there kind of a magic line about, you know, if a sheep needs to be retreated several times, that animal needs to be cold or, you know, if it comes down with foot rod and treated and it successfully recovers, that's, you know, animal doesn't need to be cold. Where is kind of the balance there of culling versus keeping uh, those animals that have been infected? It, that It's a tricky one, isn't it? And I think it's quite scary. Um, it, so I would, I'd partly say it depends where where you're starting from. So if if you have a flock of sheep and maybe 8 to 10% of them are lame, to be honest, I would say that means there's probably no good management going on at all at that level. You won't get much more lameness than that. Um, I, I would maybe encourage a farmer to start thinking about, keep, well, keep records so you really know which sheep have been lame. Um, one of the remarkable things when you do that is you realise there's a group of sheep you're treating and retreating. So you're spending a lot of time doing treatments, a lot of money on treatments. Maybe I'd say the first year, um, if they're lame three times or more, plan to cull those sheep at the end of the year. And obviously you, you cull them at a sensible time, so you're not going to cull them whilst they've got lambs at foot and they're feeding lambs, whatever. But at that natural time when you would decide which sheep to keep, cull those. Um as, as the level of lameness comes down, and it will come down really quite quickly, um, you could the next year say, right, those that are lame two or more times, I would choose to cull. I, I think that would be at most 1% to 2% of the flock by that stage. So if you're treating correctly, you don't get these misshapen feet. You do get fewer repeat cases. If you then start to select from those that are never lame, um, you know, within within a year or two, you can really change the profile of what a flock looks like in terms of how many lame sheep there are and how often you have repeated cases. Okay. Now, obviously, we're in, in different countries uh, with potentially different regulations, but can you talk about how maybe the pros and cons of, of vaccinating for foot rot and how that fits into management for prevention of the condition? Yeah. So, I mean, that actually leads on very nicely from culling because 
um, what we've found is that vaccination in a way really highlights to us the sheep that don't respond to the vaccine and, and get repeatedly lame. So, so one value of vaccination is if a flock's vaccinated and you have a sheep that still gets lame, you, you know that's a highly susceptible sheep and, and the best thing to do would be to not breed from it and cull it. Um, so the vaccines, we only have one license in the UK. It has nine of these strains that we were talking about earlier and it's not considered particularly effective. So it comes with the, the, you know, the approach, you use the vaccine, but you use all the other managements as well. So you still do the prompt treatment and um, of, of sheep that become lame because some will still get foot rot. Um, but I think what it can do is it can dampen down the, the rate at which sheep become lame. So it means the number of treatments go down. Um, we've just finished a study and in that study, antibiotic use went down by about a third. So quite quite effective at reducing the number of treatments that we're using, um, but but not fully effective. Sure. Um, in some countries, uh, Australia would be a good example. The vaccines that are being used are targeted much more, um, or one approach is that they're more targeted, and each vaccine only contains two strains. And the idea is that an individual farm, the strain profile is investigated using um, specific tests. And then the two most dominant strains that the vaccination is happens against those first. And then you work through the vaccine, the strains. Uh, that approach is being used to eradicate foot rot from flocks. And uh, in a climate where maybe foot rot only spreads for six to eight weeks during the year. In, in the UK, um, we have foot rot spreading all year round and uh, elimination or eradication is possible, but it's extremely difficult uh, and the risk of reintroduction is very high. So we're trying to focus more on helping farmers control foot rot rather than eradicate it. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. You brought up uh, the the situation in Australia, because I was going to ask you if, if autogenous vaccines would be uh, a good approach for British or, or US farmers to, to take. I think that's that's quite a difficult one. I mean, um, obviously the regulations are different. In the UK, we wouldn't be allowed to because we've got the licensed vaccine, so we're only allowed to make autogenous vaccines when there is no vaccine. Okay. I think if we go down the bivalent approach, then I would say yes, because the the closer match to the strain you're vaccinating again, it, it must be better to do it that way. Um, but if if a flock, if there are seven eight strains in the flock whether it's an autogenous vaccine or the purchase vaccine, it's going to have some benefit, but not a huge benefit. Okay. All right, Dr. Green, uh, we're, we're winding down the questions here, uh, but I would like to ask you to leave our audience with maybe one big take-home message. I think my, my big take-home message would be stop trimming, yeah. start treating promptly and effectively and you'll get your lameness levels down to under 2% in six weeks to 12 weeks. Awesome. Perfect. All right, Dr. Green, that brings us to the end of our podcast. But again, I want to express my appreciation for you uh, being willing to come on and, and discuss all this uh, with our listeners. Thank you for having me. Yeah, very good. Thank you. And thanks to you, our listeners, too, uh, for continuing to support our podcast and helping us spread the word. Uh, please take the time to share this episode if you have enjoyed it or any of our other recordings. Uh, but until then, remember, eat lamb, wear wool, and 
The foundation of a productive flock is quite literally four sound feet on the ground. Have a nice day.